0: you'd open your Bible to Matthew chapter 2. So if you're a guest of ours my name is Owen and I'm also one of the pastors here at Emmaus and we are really excited as we lead up to Christmas this year to think about how the gospel of Matthew how this Christmas story is put together the way that Matthew draws us into the meaning of the coming of Christ what it means that he came to bring victory But he came right into the middle of our difficulty and pain. And so we're going to talk about that this morning, what that that looks like. Before we get started, I want to reinforce what Jaron said. Tomorrow, 4 o'clock, Christmas Eve service, we'd be so honored uh, to have you here. If you have family in town with you, we're going to keep this at 65 minutes uh, tomorrow. So it'll be a time where you can come. We'll have kids can come up on stage. There'll be something for them to do. I forget how many dozen donuts we ordered, but it's a pretty extreme amount. <laughs> so, not that your kids have not had enough sugar uh, over the holiday break, but we're glad to sugar them up and then send them home with you uh, tomorrow at the Christmas Eve service. So, we, we do what we can to to help you out, but yeah, it'll be a, it'll be a special time. And just to reinforce the fact that when you think about sharing the love of Christ with your neighbors and your family, Christmas still is one of those opportunities you can have that conversation and you can make that invitation where it feels sometimes very difficult to do that. Otherwise, Christmas is just a wide open opportunity uh, to do that. And we pray that you will take take advantage of that. Before we read Matthew chapter 2, 13 to 23, I'm just going to make the same blanket apology I made to you last week. Seven days later, I don't feel a lot better than I did last week. <laughs> so I apologize if I just sound completely congested, because I am. So, uh, but we are here, not to worry about that, we are here to think about God's word and, and the hope and the comfort that comes at Christmas. Let's read Matthew chapter 2, 13 to 23. Now when they had departed... And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to slow down in the midst of what can be sometimes a busy time if we're going from place to place or preparing for family to be in one location. God, and all the things that come with this time of year God, thank you for the gift of corporate worship that we gather to sing, to encourage one another, to look at your word together. Father, I pray that by the power of your spirit, God, that you would use this section of Matthew chapter 2 to remind us of the comfort of Christmas. Father, that no matter what we are going through this holiday season, that we can know that through Christ we have peace and comfort that goes beyond anything that we could ever imagine. And so God, help us this morning to see that, to experience that, and to be able to share that with others. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to start out this morning the same way I did last week, and that's by pointing you to Romans chapter 12, verse 15, as a reminder of the way that Matthew chapter 2 is set up. One of the things we're going to find when we go through the book of Matthew is that Matthew is very strategic about how he puts his book together. The structuring of Matthew tells us a lot about the message that he's trying to get across, and so Matthew is very intentional in the way he structures it. Once again, we kinda go back to that tax collector accounting background maybe that Matthew had, and so he really likes things to fit together and connect, and we're gonna see this in so many different ways. But in Matthew chapter two, the first part of it is focused on the theme of joy. We just sang about that a few minutes ago. This is the joy of Christmas. And last week we saw this with the three wise men how when we worship and we give and we go obediently, that we experience the joy of Christmas. And Christmas is a joyful time, right? Except when it's not. Um, Except when you're going through situations and. You know you're supposed to look one way on the outside. You're supposed to keep up an appearance of, oh yeah, everything's okay. I'm feeling great. And just inside you know, man, that's just not true. Like I am hurting. I don't know what you've been through this last year. I don't know what kind of emotions you carry into the holidays. This may be the first Christmas since X happened, or it may be a Christmas that you're coming into and you feel like you're just barely holding life together by a few threads and it's difficult. And one of the things that we want to do a good job of as a church, and and I think we're moving in a good direction at this, not just Emmaus, but just the church in general, we don't want to put forward this idea that you have to fake it when you show up. Like you have to show up and pretend like everything is okay. Some of you may have grown up in a church situation where you felt like you had to do that. When you showed up, you had to pretend like everything was okay, even though you knew it wasn't. And so as we come together, what we want to do really well is we want to rejoice with those who rejoice. When we experience the joy of Christmas, we want to celebrate that. And we want to celebrate with those who are experiencing that joy. And at the same time, we want to be able to mourn with those who mourn. And so last week was the joy of Christmas. This week is the comfort of Christmas. What does the message of Christmas have to say to your situation or to people around you who are experiencing pain, who are experiencing hurt, who need to experience the comfort that comes from the Lord? So that's what we're going to look at um, in the second half of Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at two of these sections this morning, and then the third one we're going to look at tomorrow at the Christmas Eve service. Okay, so go back to verse 13. Let's let's look at how this works and, and what this teaches us about, the comfort of Christmas. How do we experience that? Verse 13. Now when they had departed, who's the they? The they is the wise men. Departed means they've, they've left the home there in Bethlehem. Mary finally got her Christmas guests to go home. You know that experience where people overstay their welcome? You're like, all right, it's time to, it's time to leave now. So uh, almost certainly... Mary looked at Joseph and said, Joseph, get these guys out of the house. Like, we, I can't take this anymore. So uh, finally, she got the wise men to leave. So they, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Now, this is a very consistent pattern. We see this, how God continues to guide the story. This is not just random decisions that Joseph is making, that God is continuing to guide what's happening. So he appears to Joseph in a dream and says, rise. Take the child and his mother. I didn't mention this last week, but that ordering of language is very intentional in Matthew. The child and his mother. The child is primary, and he's with his mother. So anytime Matthew will mention Jesus and Mary together, the child, Jesus, is always mentioned first here. So rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child, to destroy him. Now the question is, why Egypt? Why would they flee to Egypt? Well, there's a couple of things going on there. The first is, you have to remember that at this time, there was a large Jewish population in Egypt. When the exile had happened, and we're going to talk a lot about the exile this morning, and I'll explain what I mean by that, but when people were forced to leave the Promised Land. A lot of them went down to Egypt. In Egypt, you even had another temple that had been built. And remember in Egypt, you have the town Alexandria that's a center of great learning that's there. And so there was a very large Jewish population in Egypt. And so there's a chance that Joseph had family in Egypt in some of this area. So they are going to Egypt. This is not a random location. They're going there and there's, there's a large Jewish population there. Also though, this is going to connect the story of Jesus again with all of the stories that come out of the Old Testament and the role that Egypt played in the Old Testament, all those stories, and we're going to see how they fit together. So they're going to Egypt where there's a strong Jewish presence, but they're also going there because we're going to see how all these stories fit together with what God is doing through Jesus's birth. Here's another thing I would point out to you here, and we have to be careful not to overplay this card, but Jesus and his family, in a real sense, are refugees in this situation. Now, the church has probably been guilty at times of overplaying this, and we don't want to take it out of context, but they are definitely a family who is facing persecution, facing destruction, and so they have to leave their land to go to another land. And a couple of times this morning in the story, we're going to find how Jesus connects with groups of people in ways that might surprise us. And so here, at the beginning of this section, when Jesus is going to Egypt, he's identifying in many ways with people who have experienced refugee status uh, through, throughout history. And so we need to keep that in mind as, as a church. So they go there in verse 13. Well, the, in verse 13, the angel tells them what they're going to do. Now, verse 14, watch what happens. He rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt. If you look at 13, what the angel told Joseph to do, and 14, what Joseph does, they match up perfectly. Joseph is an incredible picture of stability and obedience when you tell your kids obedience means meet, immediate and total. Joseph shows that. He says, "I'm going to do." Exactly what the angel of the Lord told me to do. Now, Joseph's obedience here has to be some of the greatest courage and obedience ever shown by a dad and husband because watch what happens in verse 14. He rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Guys, you don't wake a sleeping baby and you don't wake a sleeping mom, <laughs> all right? So uh, Joseph's obedience is so great that in the middle of the night, he wakes, and you have to feel for him at this point. He's probably thinking, man, the angel of the Lord told me to do this, and he looks over, and Mary is sleeping, and the child is sleeping, and he's like, oh, gosh, if I wake her, I'm gonna be in so much trouble. <laughs> but the, uh, the angel of the Lord is telling me to do this, so I'm gonna do it, so, so he does it. He, he wakes her up. He has to explain to her, I promise the only reason I'm waking you up is because the angel of the Lord told us we have to do this. And so they get out, and in verse 15, it says, when they departed to Egypt, they remained there until the death of Herod. We know that the death of Herod happens in the spring of 4 B.C., so they go down there to Egypt, and they remain there until Herod has died. And it says in verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now that phrase, out of Egypt I called my son, that comes from Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 in your Old Testament. And here's where we have to start making sense of what Matthew is doing in explaining the comfort of Christmas. Why does Matthew take Hosea 11 verse 1 and use it to connect to the story of Jesus because if you go back and you read Hosea chapter 11 verse 1, it's referring to the exodus, how God had brought his people out of Egypt, and when he says, out of Egypt, I brought my son, when you see that phrase in the Old Testament, my son equals Israel, equals the people of God, but Matthew uses it to explain what God has done in bringing Jesus out of Egypt. Why is he doing this? Well, a couple of different reasons. The first is he's going to again connect Jesus' story back to Moses. Moses. Several times in the book of Matthew, Jesus is going to be the new and better Moses. And I'll try to point these out to you as we go along. But what God used Moses to do in drawing the people out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage, he's going to do in a greater way through Jesus. And so here you have one of those first examples of where Jesus and Moses are are connected together. The other thing you have to see, though, is when you go back to Hosea chapter 11— And you go to verse 2, immediately after the one. Look on the screen here. It says, Hosea chapter 11, verse 2. The more they were called, the more they went away to Baal and idols. The book of Hosea, to understand what Matthew is doing here, let me give you a little background on the book of Hosea. Here's the first thing you need to know. The book of Hosea is the first of the prophets and what is sometimes called the book of the 12. If, if you have a Bible in front of you and you go to the table of contents and you look at where Hosea is located and then you keep going down, you're gonna have Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah and there's, there's 12 books there that sometimes if you grew up in church, those books are called the minor prophets. Not the greatest phrase to describe what's going on here, but those 12 prophets were often viewed as one book by the people who were reading the Hebrew Bible. And so when Matthew mentions a verse from Hosea, the people would not just thought of Hosea, they would have thought of all those books together. And so Jesus' story is going to carry forward what God spoke through the prophets. So that's one of the reasons he mentions it. The other is because when he says the more they were called, the more they went away. If you've studied the book of Hosea before, you know that book is about how the people of Israel were rebellious and unfaithful to God. And so God rescued them out of Egypt, but the people rebelled against God. They were unfaithful to God, and what you have here is you have what becomes the story of the exile, that God draws his people. There's exodus that happens when God brings his people out of Egypt, and they come into the promised land, and God calls them to live there in the promised land as his people, but what do they do? They rebel against God. They begin to go after false idols, and Hosea is writing at the very beginning of when the northern kingdom would go into exile. So around 722 B.C. or something like that. Hosea is writing that, about that time, and he's preparing for them. Look at verse 5 in Hosea chapter 11. It says, they shall not return to the land of Egypt. So the exodus has happened. They're not going back to Egypt. But Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. Like okay, well, There's not much good news in that, Owen. Thankfully, it doesn't end there. If you skip ahead to verse 11 in Hosea, it says, they shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, so he ties back that in, ties Egypt back in, and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. What Matthew is doing In Matthew chapter 2, when he says, Out of Egypt I called my son. He is telling the people that the story of Exodus, of how God rescued his people in the Old Testament, and the story of exile, how he continued to love his people even when they rebelled against him and were unfaithful, that those two realities are going to be brought to fulfillment in the work and ministry of Jesus. And so when you think about how does Jesus, how does the story of Christmas bring comfort, it's the fact that when we experience the salvation that comes through Jesus, that story of the Exodus, and when we experience his patience and his kindness and his mercy that's exemplified in the exile, that we have comfort that goes beyond anything we could ever imagine. Go back to verse 1 just for a second so we can see how this all fits together. So when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Matthew is doing something called typology. He's connecting a piece from the Old Testament. And then he's saying, and this is what that teaches us about Jesus. Jesus is going to be the new Moses who is going to rescue his people out of slavery And he's also going to be perfect Israel. He is going to be the perfect picture of what it looks like to trust and obey God. And so as we go through the book of Matthew, you're going to see those two themes show up over and over again. New Moses, Jesus saves his people, perfect Israel. Jesus shows his people how to live in the way that God has called them to live. So as you follow this pattern, that's where it's going to take us. First Kingdom Connection point then for this morning is salvation. That faith in Christ's victory becomes the foundation for comfort. What do we do when we're facing pain, when we're facing hurt, when this Christmas comes with experiences that you never wanted or expected? The first thing we have to do is we have to go back to the foundation of the salvation that we have through Jesus. And I know that could be taken as trite or oversimplistic, and I don't mean it that way at all, but here's what I do mean. We need that foundation. We need that point of reference. When you are hurting, when you think there's no way I could ever get through this situation, there's no way that I could ever make it through this, what is your point of reference? It's that in Christ I have hope And peace and joy that go beyond anything I could ever imagine or anything I could ever earn on my own and so the greatest source of comfort you can have this Christmas is to know that in Christ your sins have been forgiven that in Christ there is hope for all of eternity and that in Christ I have peace with God a peace that can only come through Jesus and what he has done for me And so at the very foundation, at the very core this morning, know that the comfort of Christmas is that when Jesus came as the baby born in Bethlehem, he also came as the Savior. He came as the one who would take away all pain, all darkness, all hurt. Remember that. God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. God, remind me of how good and faithful you have been. At Christmas, it is a beautiful time to remember God's faithfulness. It's a beautiful time to remember what God has done in forgiving your sins and providing that relationship and that peace with him through Jesus. And let me say this this morning. If you have never trusted in Christ for salvation, this Christmas is the greatest thing you could do. To know that if you are trying to hold your life together, it will never work. If you're trying to say, if I could just get things together, then I could get through this Christmas and maybe we could try for a new year. Don't go that direction. There is comfort that comes through the salvation that only Jesus can bring. And we would love to talk to you about that. We'd love to tell you what it is to trust in him. Because if you look anywhere else, you will never find the comfort and the hope and the peace that can only come through Jesus. So number one, where do we find comfort at Christmas? We find it through the salvation and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Then let's look at the next section, what happens next. Verse 16 in Matthew chapter 2. Then Herod, when he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Okay, so you have another Moses connection that's being made here. If you go back to Exodus chapter 1 in your Bible, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find an evil ruler named Pharaoh who is seeking to kill a lot of young boys. Fast forward to the coming of Jesus, what do you find? You find another evil ruler, this time Herod, who is seeking to destroy a lot of young boys. Matthew, again, is helping us connect the Moses story and Jesus' story. He's putting those two pieces together. Now, when it says at the end of chapter or end of verse 16 that he was seeking to kill all the male children in Bethlehem when you think about Bethlehem at this time Bethlehem most likely had about a thousand people that lived there from what scholars can tell what archaeologists can tell most people put the population of Bethlehem at about a thousand so when you think about the number of boys under the age of two most estimates put that in the 10 to 15 range now one is too many we we realize that But sometimes when we hear this story, we think of thousands or thousands of of young children who were killed. Most likely it was in the 10 to 15 range. The reason that matters is because you don't find this particular story of Herod anywhere else mentioned in the ancient world. The reason is, Herod did this type of thing quite often. (laughs) And so yet another act of evil by Herod didn't make it into some of the other records that were kept in the ancient world Because this is the type of thing that Herod did. And so the fact that he would go into a village and take out 10 or 15 young children, is that terrible? Absolutely it's terrible. It's horrendous. But unfortunately, it matches up exactly with what we know about Herod's rule. That he was always trying to, he was paranoid about holding on to power. And he would use all kinds of evil uh, if it meant that he could hold on to his power. Verse 17 After it talks about what happens there in Bethlehem, verse 17 says, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Now here's where it gets pretty cool, the way that Matthew is putting these these pieces together. When people talk about the Old Testament prophets, Hosea and Jeremiah are often compared as very similar type of prophets. Both of them Came with a message of judgment against the people of God. But Hosea and Jeremiah are famous among the prophets because every time they spoke of God's judgment, they immediately would speak of his hope and his compassion. Hosea, he wrote, he prophesied at the beginning of the time when the northern kingdom was sent into exile to Assyria. Jeremiah, he prophesied at the time when the southern kingdom was going to be sent into exile. And so it's not a random thing that Matthew mentions Hosea and then turns around and mentions Jeremiah. Because when you think about the Old Testament prophets, Hosea and Jeremiah go together. One prophesied about the northern kingdom, one the southern kingdom. Both prophesied judgment, but always, always with hope and compassion as part of their prophecy. And so Matthew is helping us to tie these pieces together here. And he says, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Well, what did did Jeremiah say? Verse 18. Here's what Jeremiah prophesied. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Okay. Where's Ramah? Why would Matthew mention this? Why does Jeremiah include this as part of his prophecy? Well, to understand what's happening here, you have to look at Jeremiah chapter 40, verse 1. Jeremiah 40, verse 1, as Jeremiah is talking about the experience he had, and we'll explain how this works here in a second. Here's what he says. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuchadnezzar had let him go from Ramah, when he took him bound in chains along with all the captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. Okay, here's what happens with Ramah. When Nebuchadnezzar and then his right-hand man, Nebuchadnezzar, when they were coming in to attack Jerusalem, to take over the southern kingdom and sent them into exile, they gathered the people up and Ramah, was the staging area where they took the people before they sent them to Babylon. So imagine in your mind, they've gathered all the people up, they're going to send them, all, they've gathered all the people of God up there in this area, th- who they're going to send to Babylon, and they take them to this staging area before they send them out. To get an idea in your mind of where these locations are, if you take where we're located right now, And pretend that that is Jerusalem in your mind. Ramah would be essentially downtown Oklahoma City. So a little bit north up up the road. When they gathered them there, they were going to take them to Babylon. And the way they got them to Babylon is they headed northeast on Um, (laughs) I-44. Not really, but that's the way to think about it. So they headed northeast And you're thinking about I-44, not to get to Tulsa, but they're going to be taken up essentially to St. Louis, and then they're going to go back to the southeast, and they're going to end up somewhere in the eastern part of the U.S., just to kind of get around your mind what this area would have been like. And so Jeremiah is taken to the staging area at Ramah. But the authorities decide to leave Jeremiah in the Promised Land and they still take all the other people captive and take them off to Babylon. So when you go back to Matthew chapter two, verse 18, and it says, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Why is all this weeping happening there? It's because it's the staging area where the people are gonna be sent away from their land, where they're gonna be exiled from the promised land. They're being kicked out of their area. Probably the only example we have that we could kind of connect with in the last couple hundred years is you think about the Trail of Tears for Native American people uh, in in our country. That type of idea of I'm being rounded up and sent away from my land, this is something similar to what would have happened to the people here. So look at the end of verse 18. So a voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping and loud lamentation. And look what happens. You get a phrase here. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. So remember, Matthew is quoting from Jeremiah, who was writing around the time of the southern kingdom being sent into exile, and it says, Rachel is weeping for her children now where does rachel show up in the story well rachel comes from the book of genesis in the book of genesis you have a story where rachel and leah are sisters and jacob wants to marry rachel because she's the hot sister Um, but he's forced to marry leah initially and so he marries leah and then he marries rachel And Rachel, for a long time, is not able to have children. Rachel finally is able to have a son who she names Joseph. And this is the famous Joseph of the book of Genesis in the Old Testament. And then she has a second son, Benjamin, but she actually dies in childbirth when giving birth to Benjamin. Can you imagine where this happens, where the location of her dying and childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin? It happens right around the area of Bethlehem. So here's what's happening. Rachel, in the book of Genesis, is weeping for her children. The exile happens, and the people are sent out of the promised land around the same area that Rachel was weeping in the book of Genesis. So Rachel continues to be the woman who weeps for the people being sent far away. Then you get to the book of Matthew and she's still weeping because now King Herod has killed 10 to 15, maybe 20 young children in this area. Here's something I want you to see. This is very important. When Jesus comes... He shows connection and solidarity with whom? With refugees, with weeping women, and with young children who are oppressed by people in power. When you think about the kingdom of God, when you think about what it looks like at Christmas for, for Jesus to come, who does he connect with? Refugees, weeping women, and children who are facing oppression and destruction from people in power. So many times when we think about the kingdom of God, if we're not careful and we think about Christianity, we think about those who are in power or those who have money or those who have influence or those who have fame, but that's not the ministry of Jesus, is it? The kingdom of God comes in ways that we would have never expected. Here's the other part of this, though, that I want you to see. This verse from Matthew chapter 2, verse 18, when he quotes Jeremiah, he's quoting from chapter 31 in Jeremiah. And I want to show you something, the verses that happen around Jeremiah 31. So this comes out of 31. Here's another part of that chapter. He who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. This is the same language we saw last week um, or, or the week before as well. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness or sorrow. And then look at the verse that comes right after the one that Matthew quotes, verse 16 and 17. Keep your voice from weeping and keep your eyes from tears, for there is reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy; there is hope for your future. Remember what we said about Jeremiah? He prophesied judgment but he always included hope and compassion in his prophecy that god would not forget his people that he would continue to bring comfort. If you like to write in your bible, Matthew chapter 2 verse 18 where it makes that quote from Jeremiah, out to the side, you can write the phrase book of comfort. Book of comfort. Here's what I mean by that. When scholars think about Jeremiah chapter 30 to 33, that portion of Jeremiah, they call it the book of comfort, because in the middle of all these bad things that are happening to the people at the time of the exile, Jeremiah continues to say, God is with you, God will not forget you, God is at work, and so he brings comfort, and not only that, but Jeremiah 31, the verse that Matthew uses, comes out of the chapter where he also talks about the new covenant that Jesus would bring when he would establish this new relationship between God and his people. And so even though there's so much pain and so much hurt and Rachel is weeping for her children, that's not the end of the story. That they are able to comfort and encourage one another. And so when we think about the comfort of Christmas, we talked earlier, the foundation of that is found through salvation. But the comfort of Christmas also comes when we're able to comfort those around us with the hope that says God is still at work, God is still in control, God will never leave you or forsake you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 in the New Testament. I love these verses that come out of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 when we think about this idea of comfort. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Look what happens in verse 4. Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. What are those verses saying there? When God comforts us, we're able to turn around and comfort others. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, there are sufferings, there are difficulties. When we share in those sufferings, so through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. Look at verse 6. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. And then in verse 7, it ends like this. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. How do you experience the comfort of Christmas? Well, you have the hope of salvation, but you also have people that God has placed around you who are able to speak comfort into your life. God has comforted me. I want to turn around and I want to share that with you as we think about how to do that well as a church, as we wrap up here in just a minute this morning, I want to encourage you to think very specifically about how you can do that. Here's one idea that comes, uh, comes from my wife, something that, that she does that I think so, it, it's very simple but, but very helpful. She keeps a note in her phone that has verses of comfort. So, you know, your phone, you can keep notes in there. She keeps verses in there of of comfort. And when she knows that someone is hurting, you go in, though, Lord, which of these verses can I share with someone? Copy, paste, send a text message. I care about you. I love you. I want to speak God's word into your life. We mourn with those who mourn, but we don't mourn as those who have no hope. We need to comfort people before we counsel them. Be a comforter before you're a counselor. Sometimes we try to step into a situation and explain all of what's going on when really what that person needs more than anything is just someone to be there for them, to comfort them. And as we proclaim and display Jesus to people, let me give you this way of thinking about it. We want to be simple, but we don't want to be simplistic. So when you speak to people and you speak words of comfort, we need to be very simple. We're not trying to solve all their theological problems at that moment, we're just trying to speak a simple word of comfort, but we don't want to be trite. We don't want to be simplistic. We don't want to act like, oh you shouldn't be feeling that way because if you really trusted the Lord you wouldn't be experiencing that. We're trying to find how can I simply speak a word of comfort to someone without being overly simplistic in the process. And one of the easiest ways to do that is just to share scripture with people. I care for you. I'm with you. You're not alone. I want to be able to share this with you. Now, I could give you some ways to do this when we leave here, but this is a very (laughs) busy time of year. And if I tell you to do this when you go home, you're not going to do it, and neither am I. So here's what we're going to do as we wrap up. Here's your response opportunity this morning. In just a moment, after I pray for us, David is going to come up, and he is going to play for us in the background. Here are your options. Number one, Jeff, Jim, Jaron, they will be down here at the front. If you're hurting this Christmas and you just need someone to pray for you, to comfort you, you want to know more about the hope that comes through Jesus, there's going to be people down here to pray with you. Number two, your response this morning might be that you take out your phone and you send a text message. Now, I'm not naive. You've been texting during the sermon. I can live with that, all right? That's okay. Now I'm telling you to do it, though, all right? I'm telling you the best thing you can do here in just a moment is pull out your phone, and as a response to God's word this morning, text someone you know who is hurting. Maybe someone who's not a follower of Jesus, and they're going to think, I thought that person was at church. You are, but you're also sending a word of comfort to someone this morning. Here's another idea. While David's up here playing, there are cards scattered throughout the building this morning. Take one of those cards... Take the pen out of the seat back and write a note of comfort and encouragement to someone that you know is hurting. I care for you. I love you. My pastor made me do this this morning. Whatever you want to say in that note. Take that note. Write a scripture in there. Reach out to someone and share that with them this week. Come for prayer. Reach out to someone through text message. Write them a note before you leave today on that card. Or here's another thing. During this response time, take your phone, open up a note, put some scripture in there that you say, I'm going to have this scripture ready to go the next time I need to reach out to someone. Let's pray together, and then we're going to respond in some of those ways this morning. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. God, thank you that uh, your word, one of the things I love about the Bible is how realistic it is about the emotions that we face in life. We think about those psalms and some of the deep emotion that comes there. But God, I love the fact that the Christmas story in Matthew, it holds great joy, but it doesn't ignore the suffering and the pain that we face. God, I pray this morning as we think about what it is to experience your comfort. God, I pray that we would remember the joy of your salvation. God, I pray this morning that there would be people here this morning who would turn to you. Maybe they've been trying to hold their life together and they know that they can't keep going that way. God, that they would trust in the salvation of Jesus and the hope and comfort that come through him. God, I pray that over the next couple of minutes that you would use notes that are written, that you would use text messages that are sent, God, that you would draw people together in this room to pray for one another. God, that someone would just get up and go to someone else and pray for them and care for them during this time. God, that we would experience the comfort and hope and joy and peace of Christmas.